Chapter 5 The Last Secrets by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The South Pole, Part 1. The imaginations of bold men were captured by the idea of Arctic exploration for centuries before the Antarctic was even thought of as a field for discovery. The Arctic regions have a history dating back to the days of King Alfred. The Antarctic can make no such boast as this, and it is true to say that attention was first drawn to the far south by the mapmakers. Much praise is due to the early mapmakers, but as regards the far south it must be admitted that they indulged in considerable guesswork. Ortelius, for instance, in his Map of the World, which was published in Antwerp in 1570, had the temerity to draw the coast of Terra Australis Nondum Cognita, round the world as far north in two places as the Tropic of Capricorn. Haklut did, in 1599, omit the southern content from his celebrated map of the world, an abstinence on his part that deserves to be mentioned. But fictions, in spite of Haklut, continued to appear in later maps, and if they did nothing else, they were at least useful in directing the thoughts of navigators toward the Antarctic. Accident rather than design was, however, responsible for the first discoveries in the South. In 1520, Magellan found the strait which is known by his name, and during the 16th century, what discoveries were made in the direction of the South were due to contrary winds. Owing to gales, Sir Francis Drake, in 1578, reached in latitude 56 degrees south, the uttermost part of the land towards the South Pole, and so, sadly, against his will, made discoveries. And it was owing to what has happily been called a discovery-causing gale that some Dutch ships, which had set out in 1598 for the exciting but scarcely laudable purpose of plundering the coasts of Chile and Peru, were scattered in all directions. One of these ships, a mere baby of 18 tons, was driven to 64 degrees south, and there her captain, Dirk Gerritz, sighted high land with mountains covered with snow, like the land of Norway. If proof of the universal ignorance of the south at the beginning of the 17th century is needed, we have the expedition of Pedro Fernandez de Quiros, Quiros was commissioned by the king of Spain, Philip III, to undertake a voyage for the purpose of annexing the South Polar Continent. And after this annexation had been completed, he was commanded to convert the inhabitants to the true faith. It was an ambitious program, and it was far, indeed, from being carried out. In fact, the results of the expedition was almost comical. Quiros discovered the largest island of the New Hebrides, and in the belief that it was part of the southern continent, he not only annexed it, but also the South Pole itself to the crown of Spain. This expedition must be considered the first Antarctic expedition, but there is no denying that its results were more ludicrous than encouraging. Little progress was made during the 17th century in adding to the world's knowledge of the South, but in one way and another, the mapmakers received severe buffets. Toward the end of that century and the beginning of the next, some ships reached 62 degrees south and 63 degrees south, and encountering great icebergs, gained knowledge that tended to disperse the idea of a huge continent, 
from which men could reap wealth and live in comfort while reaping it. In spite, however, of this waning belief in a fertile and populous southern continent, several voyages were undertaken to look for it. But it is to be noted that the men who made these adventurous journeys were not in the least interested in exploration for exploration's sake. The reason why they made these expeditions was mainly because they hoped to enrich themselves. Not until the latter half of the 18th century was there any change in what may be called the spirit of exploration. And then, in 1764, the English government issued instructions to Commodore Byron, which clearly showed that the importance of discovery, for discovery's sake alone, was beginning to be realized. Science had been making progress, and the desire really to know and no longer guess at the extent and nature of the world perceptibly increased. Scientists engaged solely on scientific work accompanied both the expeditions of Marion and Kerguelen, and when Captain James Cook sailed in 1772 from Deptford on what was the first British Antarctic expedition, he was also accompanied by scientists. The name of James Cook will always be given a place of honor among explorers, for, quite apart from the discoveries that he made, he set an example of courage in facing dangers and difficulties that can never be forgotten. He and all the earlier navigators, we must remember, had to undertake their voyages in ships that were totally unfit to encounter ice. And when this fact is realized, we are compelled to admire the pertinacity with which they carried out their work, and to recognize that the results of their efforts were, under the circumstances, magnificent. It has been well said that James Cook defined the Antarctic region, and that James Ross discovered it. And indeed, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance either of Cook's voyages or of those subsequently undertaken by Ross. January 17, 1773 was a red-letter day in the annals of exploration, for during its forenoon, Cook crossed the Antarctic Circle for the first time. Icebergs and loose pack ice were then surrounding him, but he pushed on until he sighted closely packed ice. In his opinion, he might possibly have pushed his way through this ice, but in such a ship as the Resolution, 462 tons, he did not consider himself justified in making so dangerous an experiment. The latitude that he reached was 71 degrees 10 minutes south, longitude 106 degrees 54 minutes west. Cook's expedition returned to Portsmouth in July 1775, and then the value of this voyage was recognized. He had made the circuit of the Southern Ocean in a high latitude, and had forever crushed the idea of a fertile and fruitful Southern continent. If land lay beyond the Antarctic Circle, Cook thought it must consist of, quote, countries condemned to everlasting rigidity by nature, never to yield to the warmth of the sun. For those wild and desolate aspect I find no words. End quote. Cook, in short, had revealed the limits of the habitable globe, and his accounts of what he had encountered in the far south did not encourage men who were anxious to find land in which fortunes could quickly be made to think longingly of the Antarctic. After Cook's return, no serious attempt at geographical discoveries in the south was made until the Russian government, 
in 1819, sent an expedition under Captain Bellinghausen to the southern seas. Bellinghausen's ambition was to rival Cook's feat of making the circuit of the southern ocean in a high latitude, and he achieved it. He was also the first explorer definitely to discover land within the Antarctic Circle. Two or three years later, James Weddell, whose real business was sealing, reached a latitude of 74 degrees, 15 minutes south, more than three degrees to the south of Cook's farthest point, and for nearly 20 years, Weddell's record remained intact. During the first half of the 19th century, the southern seas became the scene of extensive sealing industries, and however much we may regret the wholesale slaughter that took place, we have to confess that some of these sealers made important geographical discoveries. Both Captain John Biscoe and Captain John Balleny were engaged in the Antarctic sealing trade, but they were fortunate enough to be employed by the firm of Enderby. Charles Enderby instructed his captains not to neglect geographical discovery, and his instructions were faithfully carried out. To the enterprise of Enderby, and to the courage and perseverance of his captains, we owe the discovery of Graham Land, Enderby Land, Kemp Island, and Sabrina Land. A French expedition under Captain D'Urville and an American one under Captain Wilkes followed in 1840. D'Urville, who encountered so many icebergs that he felt as if he was in narrow streets of a city of giants, sighted land in latitude 66 degrees south, longitude 140 degrees east, and named this coast Adelie Land. Wilkes also claimed to have discovered land, but of his claims, one of our greatest explorers has written, quote, Had he been more circumspect in his reports of land, all would have agreed that his voyage was a fine performance, end quote. Two or three years before D'Urbeville and Wilkes set out on their voyages, Colonel Sabine, at a meeting of the British Association, read a paper on the subject of terrestrial magnetism and the result was that polar exploration received a great incentive. By this time, the importance of terrestrial magnetism in regard to the navigation of ships was admitted, and the government was petitioned to send a naval expedition for the purpose of increasing our knowledge of this science in the South. A favorable reply was received from Lord Melbourne, and in 1839 Sir James Ross was appointed to command an expedition whose object was rather magnetic research than geographical discovery. Two old bomb vessels, the Erebus, 370 tons, and the Terror, 340 tons, were selected by Ross, and when their bows had been strengthened, he had at his disposal the first vessels that could be navigated among the southern pack ice. A detailed account of Ross's achievements cannot be given, but of them, Captain Scott wrote, quote, the high mountain ranges and the coastline of Victoria Land were laid down with comparative accuracy from Cape North in latitude 71 to Wood Bay in latitude 74, and their extension was indicated less definitely to McMurdo Bay in latitude 77 and one-half. Few things could have looked more hopeless than an attack on that ice-bound region which lay within the Antarctic Circle. Yet, out of this desolate prospect, Rouse rested an open sea, a vast mountain region, a smoking volcano, Erebus, and a hundred problems of interest to the geographer. The highest latitude reached by Ross was 78 degrees 10 minutes south, 
and he described the huge wall of ice which he sighted there and named the great barrier as a mighty and wonderful object far beyond anything we could have thought of or conceived this barrier was in later years found to be four hundred miles wide and of even greater length slowly very slowly the far south was being compelled to reveal some of its secrets but in spite of the interest and enthusiasm caused by ross's discoveries many years passed after his return to england in eighteen forty three before further steps were taken to make geographical discoveries in the antarctic but during this period in which geographical enterprise languished scientific research was being carried on a great desire to increase the knowledge of the science of oceanography had sprung up and as a practical outcome of the labors of scientists and inventors the challenger expedition excellently equipped for scientific research was set out under the command of captain nares in january eighteen seventy three this expedition was in itself most important but it is not belittling it to say that part of its value in the history of antarctic exploration lies in the fact that it stimulated interest in the far south and this interest gradually increased until the wish to solve the mysteries of the south polar regions became dominant in the minds of many men in england and germany in eighteen eighty five the british association appointed an antarctic committee and some two years later this committee reported in favor of further exploration great difficulties chiefly financial had however to be faced by the supporters of this expedition and a shrewd blow was received when the board of trade refused to recommend a grant of money because there were no trade returns from the antarctic regions a reply that might produce a derisive smile from the most zealous of economists for the moment the idea of antarctic exploration had received a decided setback but determined men were working to conquer the practical difficulties and none more determined than sir clements markham who was elected president of the royal geographical society in may eighteen ninety three no sooner was it generally known that a real effort was being made in england to make further discoveries in antarctica as it was by this time called than several other countries were stimulated at various dates to send out expeditions Borchgrevnik, a Norwegian, de Gerlache, a Belgian, Otto Nordenskiold, a Swede, and Charcoal, a Frenchman, led expeditions, all of which did valuable work in the South. In November 1893, a meeting of the Royal Geographical Society was held, and the duties of the projected British expedition were stated the first duty was to determine the nature and extent of the antarctic continent the fifth was to obtain as complete a series as possible of magnetic and meteorological observations such an expedition was intended both to encourage maritime enterprise and to add to the world's knowledge from the outset the promoters had decided that their expedition should be under naval control but the government could not be persuaded to take charge of it the admiralty however assisted both with the loan of instruments and by granting leave to officers and men on full pay innumerable obstacles continued to hamper the promoters on every side but they were slowly removed and at last the ship was launched at dundee in march nineteen o one and christened the discovery sir clements markham fourteen years before 
had in his own mind selected the fittest commander if an expedition to the south ever became practicable the name of this commander was robert falcon scott and after much opposition had been overcome opposition which sir clements described as harder to force a way through than the most impenetrable of ice packs scott's appointment was confirmed a great attack upon the antarctic regions was about to be made but it is worthy of record that in the instructions issued to captain scott no mention of the south pole as an objective was made by july the labor of preparations for the expedition was almost finished and on august fifth nineteen o one the discovery was visited by king edward the seventh and queen alexandra and then started on her adventurous voyage we can easily understand scott's anxiety to be up and away for he had no polar experience to help and guide him and his desire to justify the confidence placed in him must have been intense in the discovery in addition to scott himself were several men whose names were destined to become famous in the history of polar exploration ernest h shackleton was a second lieutenant Ernest A. Wilson was described as surgeon, artist, and vertebrate zoologists. Edgar Evans was a petty officer. Frank Wilde and Thomas Crean were A.B.s. William Lashley was a stoker. Surely the nucleus of a goodly company. Littleton, New Zealand, had been chosen for the headquarters of the expedition in the south, and the discovery arrived there on 30th November. She stayed for three weeks to refit and take in provisions, and then started upon the next stage of her eventful journey. The Antarctic Circle was crossed on the 3rd January, and soon afterwards the pack was on all sides of the ship. But she behaved splendidly, and Scott was delighted with the way she forced herself through the ice. Scott's original intention had been that the discovery should not winter in the Antarctic, but that, having landed a party of men, she should return northward before the ice made such a journey impossible. A hut had been provided for this party, but in February a spot was found in McMurdo Sound in which it was thought that the ship would pass the winter in safety. Consequently, Scott decided to use the Discovery as his headquarters and to utilize the hut for other purposes. The task of erecting the huts, in addition to the main hut, there were two smaller ones for magnetic work, was difficult, but it was eventually accomplished, and the party began to settle down to spend the approaching winter. Before, however, the winter set in, Scott, knowing how ignorant he and his companions were of sledging, was anxious to gain as much experience as possible, and the result of the sledging expeditions that were made only showed how urgently this experience was needed. Early in March, Scott wrote, quote, Even at this time, I was conscious how much there was to be learnt, and I felt that we must buy our experience through many a discomfort. And on looking back, I am only astonished that we bought that experience so cheaply, for clearly there were the elements of catastrophe as well as of discomfort in the disorganized condition in which our sledge parties left the ship. When the discovery was brought into McMurdo Sound, there was good reason to suppose that she would soon be frozen in. But weeks passed before the sea became frozen, and until the ship was firmly fixed in the ice, there was always a chance that she might be driven away by a gale and be unable to return. 
This uncertainty hampered operations for some time, and it was not until the last days of March 1902 that the ship was satisfactorily frozen in. The sun departed at the end of April, and during the long winter that followed, the party of explorers had much to occupy them and to discuss. Scott had taken dogs with him for sledging purposes, but although he knew that they must increase his radius of action, he always detested the idea of using them because of the suffering that must necessarily be caused. But the question of using dogs was only one of the many problems in connection with sledging that was debated during that Antarctic winter. In judging the journeys that followed in the spring, it is to be remembered that as far as the Antarctic regions are concerned, they were pioneer efforts, and also that the conditions of the Antarctic sledging differ considerably from those of the Arctic. In these journeys, Scott and his companions were taught lessons that were afterwards of the greatest value to other explorers as well as to themselves, lessons that nothing except experience could teach. The journey that Scott, with Wilson, Shackleton, and several dogs began on the 2nd of November, with the object of pushing as far south as possible, was accompanied at the outset by a supporting party. But this party turned back by the 15th, and Scott, Wilson, and Shackleton had immediate cause to know how strenuous a task they had before them. The dogs were already causing anxiety, and were quite unable to do the work expected from them. Relay work, which meant that each mile had to be traveled three times, became the order of the day, and in consequence the advance toward the south was greatly hindered. Soon afterwards, the men themselves began to suffer from blistered noses, cracked lips, and painful eyes. But on the 21st, Scott took a meridian altitude and found the latitude to be 80 degrees one minute south. In spite of all discomforts and anxieties, Scott was in a happy mood that night when he wrote, quote, All our charts of the Antarctic region show a plain white circle beyond the 80th parallel. It has always been our ambition to get inside that white space, and now we are there, the space can no longer be a blank. This compensates for a lot of trouble. As the advance laboriously continued, the condition of the dogs, to Scott's poignant sorrow, went from bad to worse, and by 21st December the question of turning back had to be considered. At this time, additional anxiety was caused by Shackleton, who was showing symptoms of scurvy. But Christmas Day was in sight, and as on that festival the travelers had decided to have a really satisfying meal, they resolved to push on farther. Their meal on Christmas Day put new life into the party, but they realized all too acutely that their food supplies were so inadequate that, if they were to continue the advance, they must be prepared to face the risk of famine. There were, however, strong incentives to urge them on their way. Each day took them farther and farther into regions hitherto untrodden by the feet of men. Who can blame them for taking the risks that were involved in their determination to continue the march? But on 27th December, Wilson, whose industry in sketching and determination not to give in were beyond praise, was suffering so severely from snow blindness that he had to march blindfold, and at last the decision to turn back had to be made. 
Observations taken at their last camp showed that they had reached between 82 degrees 16 minutes and 82 degrees 17 minutes south, a finer record than Scott anticipated after he had realized that the dogs were unable to fulfill the hopes placed in them. The return march was a prolonged period of suspense. By January 9, 1903, only four out of the 19 dogs which had started on the journey were alive, and on the 15th, the last of them had to be killed. I think, Scott wrote, we could all have wept. Even more serious was the fact that at this time Shackleton became seriously ill. A grim struggle followed, for although Shackleton showed unending courage, he was suffering severely from scurvy, and Scott and Wilson, who were themselves attacked in a lesser degree by this disease, often had cause to wonder whether this return journey was not beyond their powers. It was with feelings of profound thankfulness that, at the beginning of February, Scott and his companions reached the ship. For ninety-three days they had been on the march, and during that time they had traveled 960 statute miles. When the explorers reached their goal, they found that the relief ship, the morning, had arrived, and Shackleton returned in her. But the discovery, after being so reluctant to freeze firmly into the ice, refused entirely to thaw out, and consequently Scott and most of his original party spent a second winter in the Antarctic. During this additional year, Scott, with Edgar Evans and Lashley as his companions, made a wonderful western journey in which adventures enough to last ordinary men for a lifetime were almost part of the daily routine. Not until February 1904 was the Discovery freed from the ice, and on 10th September she reached Spithead after an absence from England of over three years. In those years a crop of most useful information had been gathered, and many geographical discoveries had been made. Among the latter were King Edward Land, Ross Island, and the Victoria Mountains, and, most important of all, the Great Ice Cap on which the South Pole is situated. Not for some years yet was the South Pole to reveal its secret, but Scott's first expedition may truthfully be said to have shown the way towards that revelation. In the years to come, Amundsen frankly admitted how carefully he and his companions studied the accounts of Scott's and Shackleton's expeditions. After Scott's return from his first visit to the Antarctic, no further attempt was immediately made to visit the far south. But that great explorer, Ernest Shackleton, had seen enough of the south to be gripped by the desire to solve more of its problems. And in the Geographical Journal of March 1907, he stated the program of a proposed expedition. In this program, Shackleton said, quote, I do not intend to sacrifice the scientific utility of the expedition to a mere record-breaking journey, but say frankly, all the same, that one of my great efforts will be to reach the southern geographical pole. End quote. The financial difficulties that seemed to be inseparable from polar expeditions followed, but they were ultimately removed, and on July 30, 1907, the Nimrod sailed for New Zealand. Bearing in mind the failure of the dogs in Scott's expedition, Shackleton decided to use Manchurian ponies as his principal means of traction. 
the utmost care was taken in preparing the equipment and in choosing the staff to accompany the expedition shackleton intended to land a shore party and among this party were frank wilde and ernest joyce who had been with scott douglas mawson lieutenant j b adams dr e marshall raymond priestley and g e marston before leaving england shackleton decided if possible to establish his winter quarters on king edward seventh land in preference to scott's old quarters at hut point in mcmurdo sound but he was unable to carry out this plan and ultimately he landed close to cape royds on the east coast of ross island on february twenty second nineteen o eight his ship the nimrod started upon her journey to new zealand the winter quarters that had necessarily to be chosen were separated from hunt point by some twenty miles of frozen ice and shackleton was greatly disappointed that he was prevented from landing on king edward seventh land where he would not only have broken fresh ground but would also have been considerably nearer to the pole in the light of subsequent events it is of interest to note that shackleton in his search for winter quarters off the barrier looked with eagerness upon a bay which he named the bay of whales but owing to the conditions of the ice he thought it necessary to leave this spot as quickly as possible in another respect this expedition met with poor fortune namely in the loss of ponies when the party settled down to spend the winter only four ponies were still alive and it is no cause for wonder that they were watched with the closest attention and as a manchurian pony has been endowed with more than his fair share of original sin he requires a very great deal of watching before the winter set in an attempt was made to reach the top of mount erebus and this attempt met with a success that acted as a tonic both to those who took part in it and to those who had remained in winter quarters as soon as midwinter day had passed shackleton began to make arrangements for the sledging work that had to be done in the approaching spring depots had to be laid in the direction of the south pole which was over eight hundred eighty statute miles distant from cape royds these preparations went on apace and with a view to starting on the southern march from the nearest possible point to the pole stores and the like were transferred to hut point and depots were also laid to help the travelers on their way adams marshall and wilde were chosen to accompany shackleton in this determined effort to reach the south pole and on the twenty ninth of october they set out with the four ponies and the four sledges by third november they had left the sea ice and were on the barrier but instead of finding a better surface they found it increasingly difficult at the outset however the ponies did splendid work though one of them on the ninth november nearly disappeared into a great fathomless chasm at the time the travelers were in a nest of crevasses and adams's pony suddenly went down a crack fortunately with help from wilde and shackleton the pony and the sledge were saved from falling into this abyss but it was an alarming incident for as all the cooking gear and biscuits and a large portion of the oil were on this sledge the loss of it would have been an irretrievable disaster to the southern journey the twenty sixth of november was a day to be remembered by shackleton and his companions for at night they found they had reached the latitude eighty two degrees eighteen minutes south and so had passed scott's farthest south 
On 1st December, latitude 83 degrees 16 minutes south was reached, but by this time three of the ponies had been killed and only one was left. A few days later, this last pony disappeared down a crevasse and nearly took Wilde and the sledge with him. Serious as the loss of this gallant pony was, there was great cause for thankfulness that Wilde and the sledge had almost miraculously been saved. Had the sledge gone, only two sleeping bags would have been left for the four men, and the equipment would have been so short that the explorers could scarcely have got back to winter quarters. Presently, the travelers left the barrier and attacked the great Beardmore Glacier, which was between them and the plateau. On the 9th of December, 340 geographical miles lay between them and the pole, and progress was painfully slow, for the surface consisted mainly of rotten ice through which their feet continually broke. A week later, they had traveled over nearly 100 miles of crevassed ice and had risen 6,000 feet. But the plateau, which they so eagerly longed to reach, still lay ahead of them. Never, Shackleton wrote, do I expect to meet anything more tantalizing than the plateau. Appalling surfaces to walk on which Wilde described as like walking over the glass roof of a station continued after the plateau had been reached and before Christmas arrived, it was obvious, if the advance was to be continued, that absolute hunger, amounting almost to starvation, stared the explorers in the face. On the evening of New Year's Day, 1909, the pole was only 172.5 miles distant, but the men's strength was nearly exhausted. The thermometer remained obstinately below zero, and on the 6th of January there were over 50 degrees of frost with a blizzard and drift. A last dash onwards followed, and on 9th January Shackleton and his party reached 88 degrees 23 minutes south and left the Union Jack flying on the plateau. The attempt to reach the pole had failed, but it was a gallant attempt, and the homeward marches that followed showed clearly enough that to have advanced farther was beyond the powers of the men. Indeed, the return journey was a terrible experience, a grim struggle against starvation, and to add to the misery of it, dysentery, owing, in Shackleton's opinion, to eating diseased ponies' meat, attacked each member of the party. All that was possible had been done, and had not the wind been behind the explorers during one of their acutest periods of suffering, it is improbable that they would ever have reached their winter quarters. While Shackleton was making his great march, a party consisting of David, Mawson, and Mackay had set out with a view to determining the position of the South Magnetic Pole. In this they were successful, the mean position of the magnetic pole being marked down by Mawson as in latitude 72 degrees 25 minutes south, longitude 155 degrees 16 minutes. This was a great triumph for the explorers, and, needless to say, it was not gained without many perilous adventures and narrow escapes. In March 1909, the Nimrod returned safely to Littleton, New Zealand, where Shackleton and his men met with the warmest of welcomes. Once again, the South Pole had resisted the attempt to locate it, but the time was drawing near for its mysteries to be disclosed. 
End of chapter 5, part 1.